Uh, how y'all doing? All right. I'm not afraid of the PC police coming around. Checking our accents, you know. Check about everything nowadays, don't they? Just PC stuff. Can't say this, you can't say that. You can't laugh at this, you can't laugh at that. Praise the Lord, in heaven there's nothing to worry about. Just, just get after it. We'll be praising the Lord so much, we're not going to have to worry about all that other stuff. All right, listen, we're going to turn to Obadiah. Obadiah is the uh, one-chapter book right before the book of Jonah. So if you, if you find Jonah, I think you'll be right there in the, in the vicinity of Obadiah. You might be asking, why are we studying Obadiah? Well, I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I know. <laughs> it's really kind of a lead up to uh, our, our study of the book of uh, Ezekiel. Not that they're connected in any way except for certain prophetic issues and prophetic themes. But um, there are some lessons that we can learn in this, in this particular book that uh, I'm hoping we can, can glean from it those things. We'll deal with that as we go along. Tonight is really just introductory, getting you to know where the book is. If you've never read it before, I hope you have. Uh, it's only 21 verses, that's all. But uh, quite a powerful little, little book from one of the minor prophets. And again, what we need to understand is they're minor, not uh, because they're lesser than uh, in, in scope to Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel. Uh, they're just minor because they're smaller prophecies. Yet each and every one of those minor prophets from Hosea all the way to Malachi are very powerful. <clears throat> and all of them referred to by the Lord Jesus himself in one way or another. So those, those are the important things. Let's read uh, the first nine verses. We're not going to study that much tonight, but uh, just to kind of give you a, a glimpse. Whoops, we're not even started yet here. Where are we? Hello? Hey, there we are. The vision of Obadiah. Now that is the vision that was given to him. It's not like his vision, like he imagined it. No, it's the vision given to Obadiah. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. Edom. This is a prophecy about the descendants of Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. So, good. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord. And an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the, the heathen. 
Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart has deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Pride is a tremendous issue in the book of Obadiah. Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though, thy, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Wow, we're going to have to, a lot to learn from this particular book and a lot to, a lot to gain as far as understanding is concerned. But let's begin. How does a message given to an obscure prophet who arises from seemingly nowhere to give to the prideful nation of Edom as a pronouncement of God's judgment appropriately apply to us? How does this message apply to us as believers in Jesus Christ? I truly want this series of studies in this one chapter book to be more to you than a history lesson. More than just going back and knowing that this particular prophet was during the time of Jeremiah or that he was, you know, written or writing this during a certain time and this is what he said. Because as we're going to see throughout all of the prophets of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Scriptures, they all wrote something that was of a near fulfillment but pointing to a much further fulfillment eventually, which means that some of the things that we're going to be learning here are still yet to happen. In fact, we pass through history getting to those prophecies by what has taken place in the, in the Middle East, especially with modern-day Israel and modern-day Jordan. So these are the things that are happening today. We're going to see some things in these 21 verses that uh, will come to life, in a sense, uh, to our understanding of what's taking place in these days and in these times. So God's, so, so I, I, I want us to realize this as our foundation, that all Scripture is given by God. We read earlier, well, actually, we read back in, in uh, 2 Timothy last week, we were touching on these verses of Scripture, but in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, 
he, uh, Paul writes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In other words, all scripture is God breathed. God has breathed all the scriptures uh, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. These things we know. This is what we need to remember in coming to a book like the book of Obadiah. Now, if we believe this scripture, this here, these two scriptures here tonight, if we believe this statement by Paul, then we necessarily believe that the 21 verses of Obadiah's prophecy were also given by inspiration of God for our benefit. It was given to us, for us, and for us to understand it and to know why it is given. But one reason that it is given is so that we might grow as men and women of God through our study of its most significant message for our time. Now, let our prayer tonight be that the Lord would open our minds and the Lord would open our hearts to receive the message contained in this short but powerful book and that we make the appropriate application to our lives so that we might be truly doers of the word and not hearers only. So once again, we look at verse 1, and it says the vision of Obadiah. And that's really what I want to focus upon, only in a brief statement, the vision of Obadiah. What is the vision of Obadiah based upon? Why is this particular vision so important? Let us consider, first of all, who this Obadiah was. The scriptures mention several men by this name. I think it's up to 12 mentions of people in the scripture named Obadiah. The scriptures mention uh, several men by this name, which, by the way, means servant of the Lord God. Servant of the Lord or servant of Hashem. Hashem meaning the name. In other words, the name of God. Jehovah, sometimes we call it uh, Yahweh. Uh, sometimes we don't want to even pronounce it. The Jews do not even want to pronounce it because it's too holy. So they just say Hashem, the name. But that's what it means, servant of the Lord. Obadiah means servant of the Lord. Now, in 1 Kings 18, we're not going to go there, but you guys can look it up later. In 1 Kings 18, uh, we read about a man by this name that uh, hid the Lord's prophets in caves during the time of Elijah. And Ahab, uh, this is not him. In 2 Chronicles 17, we're told about a teacher of the law named Obadiah that Jehoshaphat sent into the cities of Judah to preach the word of God. Uh, There are several others mentioned, but none seem to be this Obadiah, this one particular Obadiah. Now, our prophet Obadiah appears out of nowhere. It just says the vision of Obadiah. Tell us where he comes from, how old he was what his family name was. It just says the vision of Obadiah. So our prophet appears out of nowhere, uh, proclaims a message that God has given him, and then he returns to obscurity, leaving us only to think about God and the message pronounced. Is this odd? Is it even wrong? Really, no. Neither. It's neither odd, nor is it wrong. 
Because even in his name, servant of the Lord, it suggests that when we are true servants of God, it will not matter that our identity goes unknown to the world at large. Because it is God and his word that we want to draw attention to instead of ourselves. So I like that about Obadiah. He comes, he receives a vision from the Lord. He speaks the vision. He gives it to the the people that it was intended for. And then he disappears. And it brings to mind the, the very hard attitude of John the Baptist who said, he must increase and I must decrease. We must decrease so that Christ must increase. So that God Almighty increases always. This is one reason why we have to be very careful in in the church that we tend never to seek celebrity. We're not personalities from the sense of standing out. We're, we're not to be. We're to give the message that God has given to us. And our prayer is, Lord, let them see you and not me. It is for this reason that we find the next phrase in verse 1. Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. But let's just take that phrase, thus saith the Lord God. Obadiah did not proclaim his own message. That's what that's telling us. Obadiah did not proclaim his own message. He didn't express his own feelings about Edom. Or what he might have thought about this sister nation. Now think about this. The next book is, is Jonah, right? And, and Jonah had his own thoughts. I mean, uh, let's, let's, uh, yeah, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't like the Ninevites. And uh, so he, he struggled with the Lord a little bit. But praise the Lord, God. See, notice how wonderful God is. That that book isn't, you know, named, uh, you know, Panfilo or something. You know, because, you know, because Jonah didn't want to go. You know, well, we're going to get somebody else. No, we learn a lesson from Jonah. While we do at times struggle with what takes place. Jonah was obedient to the Lord. Jonah was even used as a type of Christ. Think about that. Yet Obadiah speaks nothing of himself. No thoughts, no ideas, no feelings about the Edomites or what he thought about them. Instead, what Obadiah did was he got out of the way And he proclaimed, Thus saith the Lord God. Thus saith the Lord. From this little phrase, I I want us to, to consider a few attributes and characteristics of the Lord God that will help lay a foundation for what we will for what will be said in the next twenty verses. 
So the first characteristic or the first attribute that we need to see of great importance here is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. How and why is it that over and over in the scriptures we find this phrase, thus saith the Lord God? Various prophets and other men in the scriptures proclaim that statement 277 times, and the phrase, thus saith the Lord, a total of 430 times. So there's two phrases, thus saith the Lord God, 277 times, thus saith the Lord, 430 times. Let me tell you how and why. It was because these men realized something of the sovereignty of God. They realized something of the sovereignty of God. Folks, people are not realizing the sovereignty of God today. We have so many people today who want to claim to be Christian. They want to claim that they have some stake in the church. But they want to tell God how to think. They want to tell God how to act. They want to tell God what to say. They want to tell God what to believe. And they go about changing scripture and changing thoughts and ideas and calling sin not sin. (laughs) Calling sin lifestyle instead of calling it what it really is. And if there is any canvas where this has been painted in such a broad way, it's here in this United States of America, from the top on down. The disregard for the truth of the Word of God, the disregard for the power of God, and in fact, as you'll notice tonight, the disregard for the love of God, the truth of God. And the people of God. But there is great power and authority in this little but profound statement. Thus saith the Lord God. There is boldness and confidence in those words. After all, the God who created the heavens and the earth and all things therein has complete power and authority to dictate how everything will unfold throughout history. When you think about the sovereignty of God, remember the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let's turn there, 1 Samuel chapter 2 for just a moment. The prayer of Hannah. Hannah had been unable to bear children. But the Lord gave her a son. And she took this son and gave him to the Lord at a very young age. And on on the day that she took Samuel to the tabernacle, she she broke out with a prayer of great praise to the Lord. And I want you to to listen to this prayer. 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 1, it says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. 
Neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken and and they that stumbled are girded with strength. They that were full have hired out themselves for bread, and they that were hungry ceased, so that the barren has borne seven, and she that has many children is waxed feeble. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave to the grave and bringeth up. Stop there for just a minute and look at this construction of this particular verse. Just stop and look. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. You know what many people uh, judge God about today? That he makes alive and then he kills people. But that's not, the, that's not the order that God gives here. By inspiring the heart of Hannah to praise God in this manner, she says, he killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and he bringeth up. The power of resurrection. The power of life. And then she says, The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifteth lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the Lord are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces out of heaven, shall he thunder upon them. How God filled this woman with his spirit for her to cry out. Such a marvelous and powerful and tremendous statement of God's sovereignty. God in control of all things. God in control of life and death and life. God in control of his creation and where he has set his creation upon. Man looks at the sky today, you know, they live the big telescopes and they can say oh my goodness there's all kinds of asteroids heading our way like they came 60 million years ago to destroy our dinosaurs you know when nobody was around 60 million years ago to be able to know that they just have to kind of come up with it but that's called science today And they're worried about the, you know, where things are going and where things are happening, what's aiming at us and what we got to do, you know. We got to save the earth, global warming. Is it cold outside? Starting to get cold? Supposed to be cold tomorrow? Where's the global warming? The seasons. God's in control of them all. Man just does not want to believe. 
In Job 33, verse 13, Job's friend Elihu asked Job this question. Oop, did we miss one? Yeah, we did. Verse 10, the Lord shall judge the ends of the earth and he shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's go on to Job 33, verse 13. Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. Notice the question that this man asked. Now, this is one of the friends of Job who had a lot of problems of his own, but, but he says this, why dost thou strive against God? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. God, I don't know if anybody, God has not answered any of us. God does not answer to any person because he's God and he's sovereign. Later in the same book, the Lord is speaking to Job and he makes this statement to Job. In Job 41 verse 11, who has prevented me? Which means, by the way, who has come before me in time? You know, who was before me in time? Who came before me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. There are times when God has to get tough and make it real clear who's in control of all things and who owns all things and what all things belong to or to whom all things belong. God says the whole world's mine. So who has come before me? Who has preceded me, in other words, that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. So we've got all these people in the world today just... Really not wanting to believe God, but in, in effect, they're screaming at God. You know what it says in the book of Revelation? Those of you that have been with us any amount of time over the last couple of years know that when we studied the book of Revelation, there was a, there was a segment in there where, where all things are happening on this earth, where God is bringing judgment upon this earth in the time during the tribulation period, and people are raising their fists at God and angry at God. And, and you say, well, why are they angry at God? They don't even believe in Him. That confirms what Paul taught in Romans chapter 1, that everyone knows there's a God. In other words, there are no atheists in, in, in reality. Because when it comes down to it, the person you don't want to believe in is the person you get mad at, and that's God. This world gets mad at this great God who created the heavens and the earth, for good, and yet man has rejected him. So listen, let's never doubt the sovereignty of God. Let's never doubt the sovereignty of God. God is omnipotent, which means that God is all-powerful, and he is able to perform all of his holy will. God doesn't go to sleep and get up in the morning wondering what he's going to do the next day. Sometimes we want to apply the things that we do to God and say, well, you know, what's God up to now? He's already, he's already told us what he's up to. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, he's told us what he's all about. And what he's all about is he is sovereign over all his creation. He can do anything he wants to. Now, understand this. God can do anything he wants to, and his exercise of power over all his creation is his sovereignty. God can do anything he wants to, but God will never do anything apart from his character. God is holy, holy, holy. God is righteous. 
God is just. God is true. But he can do anything he wants to because he's God. God's sovereignty is his exercise of rule as creator and as king. You see, if there's one lesson that we're going to learn tonight, that that one lesson is this, even though we've got a few more lessons to learn. But if there's one lesson that we need to learn is that God is sovereign and that we need to lift him up high in our lives. We need to have a high view of God. In effect, we need to have a high view of God and a low view of man and a low view of ourselves. The problem today is, even in the church, listen to me, even in the church, is that we have a high view of man and a low view of God. (laughs) You read the last five chapters of the book of Job. When God and Job now have conversation, not much conversation going on when God says, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Right? Where were you? So how, how do the prophets bring this out? How does a little book like Obadiah express the sovereignty of God? As we continue in this book, we're going to discover that God pronounces judgment over the little nation of Edom, and in his own timing, he executes that judgment. He does what he deems good, And necessary because he is in perfect and complete control. Kings and presidents can say what they want. Nations can do what they want. But in the final analysis, none can escape the sovereignty of God. Now you think about that for just one moment. In the day and time in which we live, kings and presidents and world leaders can do whatever they want. They can say whatever they want. Some say whatever they want to say all the time because they sound like they're campaigning all the time. Nations then can do what they want, but none of them will escape the sovereignty of God. Do you remember what Daniel said before going, uh, before Nebuchadnezzar to interpret his dream? Turn, if you will, to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. It was in his time of prayer and, and more than likely his His other friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were there with him. They're mentioned in this particular part of the chapter. But Daniel says this in in, in Daniel chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. He says, speaking of God, listen, speaking of the Lord God, he says, and he changeth 
the times and seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who has given me wisdom and might, and has made known unto me now what we desired of thee, for thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. All that Daniel could do was say, Lord, you're sovereign. When they came to Daniel with that threat to wipe out all of these magicians and wipe out all these people who had said to Nebuchadnezzar, well, we, you know, well, this is what the dream said, but he knew it was just a lot of talk. Daniel knew where he had to go. Daniel went straight to the sovereign God. And this is, this is all being brought up so that we can realize the importance of knowing that God is indeed sovereign and we need to treat him that way. We need to approach him that way. The good thing is for us that Jesus Christ, our Lord, our God, and our Savior has made the way for us through his blood, through what he did on the cross of Calvary through what he did in dying on our our behalf for our sins and shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And dying and being buried, he rose again on the third day. But on the day that Jesus died, the veil of uh, of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and access was made for us to come to him. And we can come to the sovereign God And we can worship him and praise him and thank him. And and there we can obtain, as Paul tells us in the book of Hebrews, to obtain mercy and to find grace for help in our time of need. But we have to treat God as sovereign. We have to worship him and praise him and bow down to him as the one who knows all of the secrets of all of our lives. The prophets show us that God is sovereign, is the sovereign Lord of history, and that nothing happens either to Israel or the Gentile nations that is not the result of God's direct determination. The great flood of Genesis chapter 6 The great flood of Genesis 6 was the direct result of the sovereign will of God. The plagues of Egypt were his doing. The locust plague in the book of Joel was his doing. The fall of Jerusalem, as many times as that happened, was his doing, in a sense. It was within his sovereign will. It was within his sovereign rule and control. Jerusalem never fell as a surprise to God. Because you cannot surprise God. God knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. 
And with these things in mind, we join the many believers who meditate on the providence and sovereignty of God who sooner or later come to a point where we say with them, I cannot understand this doctrine fully. Anybody there? Am I the only one? I can't understand this doctrine fully. Can you? Can anybody here understand that doctrine fully? Be brave and raise your hand. We can't. Remember that in every doctrine, every doctrine, not just this doctrine of the sovereignty of God, but every doctrine that is meditated upon, our understanding is finite. God is infinite. God is infinite. And we will never understand the nature of God fully but we can learn how to respond to it. We can learn how to respond to the sovereignty of God. First of all, we respond by not being afraid, but by simply trusting the Lord. How many times do we find Jesus say to his disciples, fear not, I'm with you. Especially after his resurrection. But nonetheless, there were even times before his death that Jesus said, fear not. Or he put it in this particular manner. Oh, ye of little faith. (laughs) Why aren't you trusting me? Why don't you trust me? We respond to the sovereignty of God. Certainly, there is a fear that, that is the, the, the right fear, the reverential fear of God we all should have as believers. But that's not what I'm talking about. We don't need to be afraid of anything because we can trust the Lord. If He is truly sovereign and our lives are in His hands, then why should we fear? That's the point. If we are... Or if I should say, if he is truly sovereign, which he is, and our lives are in his hands, then why do we fear? Why do we fear? David in Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Do you notice the focus of this? Twice in that verse, the Lord is mentioned. The Lord by name, Hashem, Yahweh, Jehovah, God's name. The Lord is my light. The God who created the heavens and the earth is my light. The God who is sovereign over all his creation is my light and my salvation. If that's the case, then who should, why should I be afraid of anything or anyone? You're looking at me like you're afraid. <laughs> Don't be afraid. He goes on to say, when the wicked, even my enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Do you know why? Because the Lord is my light and my salvation, of whom shall I fear? Even when I have enemies revealing themselves to me, whom shall I fear? 
Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should arise against me, in this will I be confident. Notice, in what? One thing have I desired of the Lord, who is my light and my salvation. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. That is what I'm going to seek. That one thing, the one thing that I've desired of the Lord. What is that? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And has God not made access to that very desire for all of us? Through Jesus Christ. I know that as Christians, we, we, we don't need to have bucket lists. Some do. You know, it's all right, I guess. You know what a bucket list is, right? Write out a list of things that you want to do before you die or get raptured. Maybe at the top of every list, and there's only one item on that whole list, should be verse 4 of Psalm 27. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I should dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And behold his beauty. To inquire in his temple. So don't be afraid, number one. Secondly, be thankful for all things that happen. Now that's the toughest one, I think. To be thankful for all the things that happen. We have so many people that we've known, maybe even we ourselves, that have struggled with the things that have happened in our lives. The loss of a loved one or the loss of things. Immediately, for some reason, we want to blame God. And we've all heard the cries, God, why, why, why? Why have you taken this away? Why have you done that? Why? Why? To ask why sometimes just takes away the the blessedness of saying thank you. I, I may not know why I say thank you, but Lord, you're in control. I can't understand why I'm going through what I'm going through. Or why my family is suffering in such a way. Why my 17-month-old little nephew is struggling with tracheotomies and transfusions and lungs collapsing and whatnot. I don't understand why, but I can thank you, Lord God, that you're there and that this little 17-month-old is in your hands. And thank you for that. If we genuinely genuinely believe 
<clears throat> excuse me, if we genuinely believe that God is in control of all things, and the Lord always acts according to His goodness, which He does, by the way, then we are compelled to be thankful for what He does, even when we don't understand it. When we learn to be thankful in all things, we also learn, thirdly, that there are no such things as luck, chance, or fate. There are no such things as luck, chance, or fate. In other words, things just happen because they happen. Or as that great uh, philosophical statement of the day, it is what it is. (laughs) It is what it is. Sometimes it ain't what it ain't, you know. Or it could be it ain't what it is and it is what it ain't. What is it? In a statement that echoes the need for us to understand the times in which we live, the times right now, the Apostle Paul tells the church in Ephesus this, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 14 through 20. Some of you guys are saying, I thought we were studying Obadiah. We are. Just keep your your hats on. (laughs) We need to understand this first. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Folks, If there's any contemporary statement that Paul is saying to the church of Jesus Christ today, it is this, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. A lot of people sleeping in the church today. Sleeping as if dead. And the Lord says, listen, wake up. I'm going to give you light. When God gives us light, there's a reason for that. We have to be the light of the world, especially now, especially today. Because what the world sees as the quote-unquote church is everything but the church of Jesus Christ. We see all kinds of liturgical things. We see all kinds of garb and robes and everything else and rings and whatnot. But we need to see Christ And the world needs to see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Jesus said, you, my people, you are the light of the world. The city that is on a hill cannot be hid. Don't place a bushel over that light. Don't put anything over that light. But let it so shine before men. That they may see my good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Then Paul says, see then that you walk circumspectly, which means walk carefully in this life. Circumspectly means, hey, you need to be aware of everything around you. The enemy is all around wanting to upend you, to destroy you, 
to get you off balance. To keep you from doing what God has called you to do. So then he says, walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Making the full extent of your time well. Making every opportunity of your time because the days are evil. They are more evil now than they've ever been. They're getting more evil every day. I get this little, you know, breaking news thing on my phone. It goes off all the time and people are getting killed on college campuses like today. And others being shot, others being, I mean, this is every day. But it's increasing every day. We live under the threat of some terroristic attack somewhere in the world every day. So he goes on and says, Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. The will of the Lord dealing with the sovereignty of God and the, and the providence of God and what He wants from you and what He wants from us and what He wants from me and what He wants for you individually. We need to know these things. He says, Be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And then don't let other outside influences get in the way. He says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And that wine could be any, any number of things. You know, don't be filled with, 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 with your mind being, uh, you know, distracted by all kinds of devices and all kinds of other things. And I say devices, both in the devices of the enemy and devices of the world, the technologies of the world. I mean, I'm not saying that they're, they're all bad, but we need to realize sometimes we spend more of our time doing this kind of stuff than reading the scriptures and, and praying and asking God to help our lives to be a right witness for people. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. When, when do we find ourselves just desiring to worship God and praise God wherever we might be? And then he says, giving thanks always for all things. And there's the point. There's the point we wanted to get to. Giving thanks always for all things. There's no disclaimer here. He says, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, nothing just happens. There is no such thing as coincidence. We need to learn to see God's hand in events throughout the day, causing all things to work together for good to those who love Him. Romans 8.28 Nothing just happens. We have to move on here. God, God's, holy, God's sovereignty leads to God's holiness. In, 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 in Obadiah's statement, thus saith the Lord God. If God's sovereignty breaks forth throughout the prophecy of Obadiah and the other prophets, then so does the attribute of holiness 
Because there is that proclamation, for example, in Exodus 15, after the Lord delivered the children of Israel from the approaching Egyptian armies at the Red Sea, and we hear in Exodus 15, verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my lust shall be satisfied upon them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. This was the thoughts and the mind and the heart of, of the Egyptians against the Israel, Israelites who had left Egypt. And then it says, Thou didst blow with thy wind. The sea covered them. They sank as, as lead in the mighty waters. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness? Glorious in holiness. Fearful in praises, doing wonders. Writer after writer throughout the scriptures declare the holiness of God. One of the great passages of scripture in this regard is Isaiah chapter 6. And especially in verses 1 through 3 where it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, all the, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. This was a vision. This was something that, that Isaiah was given by God to see. And it says in verse 2, Above it stood the seraphims. Each, had one, uh, each one had six wings, which two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That is the only attribute that we find it mentioned three times in one statement. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It never says righteous, 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 just, 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 true, 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 love, love, love. God is love. God is righteous. God is truth. But he is first and foremost holy, holy, holy. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and is devoted to seeking his own honor. His articles of worship are to be holy. Not just those within the temple, but those that are his people. We are his vessels. We are called his vessels. We are to be holy as well. The place where God himself dwells is holy. The Lord is the most holy one, as he is called in the scriptures. And he demands that his people be holy as well. An awareness of God's holiness was the driving force behind Obadiah's sharp denunciation of sin, as we will see in this one chapter book. An awareness of God's holiness was the driving force behind Obadiah's sharp denunciation of sin. It makes no difference where the sin was found, whether in foreign lands like Edom or Nineveh, or even among God's people. It was an offense to God, and it called for judgment. Apart from repentance, judgment fails. Did you get that? Apart from repentance, judgment fails. I'm sorry. Apart, apart from repentance, judgment falls. Judgment never fails. Apart from repentance, judgment falls. In the Minor Prophets, stiffer pronouncements against sin and hardier calls for deep repentance are found. 
You see, they're minor only in the fact that they're smaller letters or, or, or prophecies. The pronouncements of judgment are strong. In, most, in many cases, stronger even than, than the major prophets. But there's a third characteristic that we will see in these letters or these words of of Obadiah. Actually, the words of God through Obadiah. And that's God's love. God's love. Now, for a great number of people, it is difficult to see how God can be sovereign and holy, executing judgment against sin and still be called a God of love. How is it that a loving God can judge nations the way He does? Remember I said earlier that God can do anything He wants to do. He can do anything. But remember that what His character is. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God is true. God is good. And His mercies, the Scripture says, endure forever. So if God loved Edom, then why does he lead Obadiah to pronounce its eventual judgment and its eventual destruction? The answer to this question is that God is a God of holiness and justice as well as a God of love. These moral attributes are complementary. They are not contradictory. You see, the, the Lord expressed his love for us by giving us his law. He expressed his love for us by giving us laws. The law is like a great fence that shows us where the boundaries are. If God did not love us, if God did not love us, he, would, he wouldn't care what we did or whether we obeyed him or not. I hate to say it, but that's like some parents today. Let their kids do whatever they want. At any age, unfortunately. But would any parent in this room allow their children to play in the busy street out here? Out, out here at Zaragoza? Right now? Would any of us allow our, our kids to play there? Obviously, no. (laughs) Simply because you love them. You love them. I know that's kind of an extreme example, but a, a good parent, using this same example, communicates that love first by laying down the law. Thou shalt not play on Zaragoza. That's laying down the law because the parent loves their child. May I ask you a question? Do you smile when you've given them the law and they play in the street anyway? No, you don't. You don't smile. And so the Lord laid down the rules and the law. He sent his prophets out 
proclaiming His message to be obedient to Him, to repent of sin and enjoy His blessings, or suffer the consequences. When nations like Nineveh or Edom or even Israel refuse to obey, then God in His love had to execute judgment. But God's love is wonderful. God's love is wonderful. Listen to Paul once again tell the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. He said, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. In other words, every dimension that we can understand and know. And notice this, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. What this book of Obadiah will emphasize for us, and by the way, we have a plan. There's a plan. Our study of the book of Obadiah from here on will be in four weeks. One chapter in four weeks. That's not strange around here. I just did the Gospel of John chapter 5 in six weeks. So think of this as a bargain. 21 verses. Actually, it'll be 20 verses. No, we gotta, there's still some things we have to look at. In verse. 21 verses in four weeks. But the point is that this book of Obadiah is going to emphasize, and this is what we look for. It emphasizes God's sovereignty. It will emphasize God's holiness. And it will emphasize God's love so that we might understand Obadiah as being a message both of judgment and of hope. Amen? Y'all okay now? Do we make it through all right? We're ready to come back next week? Okay, three people will be here next week. That's all I heard. All right, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for allowing us the opportunity to start this new book. And, and I know that there are reasons why we're in it, and, and, and we want, Lord, to be attentive to that. I know that there will be things that we will learn, that we will also glean uh, to help us in our own daily walk, especially when we deal with issues like pride and dealing with 
considering you as, as sovereign and holy and, and just and true and loving. And we pray, Father, that as we continue to read and study some of these passages that may be somewhat uh, confusing, we ask that you'll help us make sense of it all because we want to grow more and more into the image of Christ. We want to grow more in maturity in our walk and in our understanding of your word. So with this, we ask that you would help us and we bless you and we praise you for what you have done for us in this, this evening and we pray that you'll continue to carry us on through this book in Jesus' name. Amen.